a real mystery can't be solved. Not completely. So he's just out of reach like a light around the corner. You might catch a glimpse of what it reveals, feel its warmth, but you can't know the heart of it. Not really. That's what gives it value. It can't be cracked. It's bigger than you and me. Bigger than everything we know. That's Major Garland Briggs, but there's not much mystery in today's episode. I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black. Today, in our uh, slow exploration currently of the opening titles, the next shot is the factory, the outside. Specifically, it's the Weyerhauser Mill. Some background. This is from Special Collections of the University of Washington, an entry on the Snoqualmie Falls Lumber Company, specifically sourced from the Seattle Times, 20th December, 2002. In the early 1890s, the town of North Bend was called Snoqualmie, and the town of Snoqualmie was called Snoqualmie Falls. What is now Snoqualmie got its name, and the railway depot that was originally slated to go to North Bend by wooing railway officials when North Bend's founder, land speculator Will Taylor, who platted the city. I don't know what that means, platted. Was out of town. (laughs) Oh shit, I should have read this ad, that's funny. To avoid confusion, railroad officials created rules against nearby towns sharing similar names and so forced what is now North Bend to change its name and made Snoqualmie Falls drop Falls from the town's name. The railroad depot on Railroad Avenue in Snoqualmie's old downtown core soon attracted other business interests to the city. Edmund and Louisa Kinsey, who were believed to have purchased the first lots in the new town, quickly became community stalwarts. Newcomers flooded into Snoqualmie after an underground power plant was built at Snoqualmie Falls in the late 1890s, producing electricity and local jobs. A small company town, including a railroad depot, grew up around the falls. A second powerhouse was added in 1911. A few years later, in 1917, Snoqualmie Falls Lumber cut its first log. The owners of the second all-electric lumber mill in the country built their own company town, called Snoqualmie Falls across the river and up a hill from Snoqualmie. At its peak, the mill town included 250 homes, a hotel, community center, 50-bed hospital, barbershop, grade school, boarding house for single men, and eight bunkhouses built for Japanese workers. During World War I, soldiers were assigned to the mill and woods so that wood, an essential material for the war effort, could still be logged and processed. Though mill wages fell during the Great Depression, Snoqualmie Falls Lumber which later became Weyerhaeuser, survived the hard times to enjoy the nation's post-World War II building boom that increased demand for lumber. By the 1950s, the idea of a mill town had fallen out of vogue, the houses at Snoqualmie Falls were in need of expensive maintenance, and mill workers, who rented from the company, wanted the chance to own their own homes. Many of the houses were moved across a temporary bridge on the Snoqualmie River to create the Williams Addition to Snoqualmie in 1958. By 1960, Snoqualmie's population had stabilized at around 1,200 residents. By then, agriculture was no longer a major economic force in the community, but Weyerhaeuser's mill operations were still a mainstay. With the completion of Interstate 90 in the 1970s, more Snoqualmie residents began commuting to jobs outside the city. Still, over the next 30 years, only about 11 people were added to the city's rolls each year. In 1989, Weyerhaeuser closed its main mill above Snoqualmie. In 2002, the company announced it was shutting down its Snoqualmie dry kilns and planing plant. Closure, along with Weyerhaeuser's decision to mothball its White River Mill in Inumclaw, effectively ended the company's 100-year logging operation in King County. 
Backtracking a little, this is from SnoqualmieValleyMuseum.org, originally published in 2004, written by David Batty. Dreams of efficient harvesting of Snoqualmie Valley timber began in 1900 when Weyerhaeuser purchased thousands of acres in western Washington from railroad interests. The Grand and Coast Lumber Company purchased railroad lands, checkerboarded with the Weyerhaeuser Holdings, in the valley in 1906. By 1914, the feasibility of heavy investment in milling and marketing, the exceptional timber resources of the Snoqualmie Valley, bore fruit in the incorporation of the Snoqualmie Falls Lumber Company by Weyerhaeuser and Grand and Coast. With capitalization of $23 million, this was serious business. The plan was to build the second all-electric mill in the nation. The first such mill being an upgrade of Weyerhaeuser's Everett Mill B, completed in 1916. It is important to remember that the underground power plant at Snoqualmie Falls, the first hydroelectric plant in the state of Washington, went online in late 1898 and helped prove the viability of the alternating current system of power transmission over the direct current system espoused by Thomas Edison. The town of Snoqualmie did not have electricity until 1912, and outlying valley farms were without electricity until the late 1920s and early 1930s. Cut away to... This is from Weyerhaeuser.com. Weyerhaeuser Company began more than 100 years ago with 900,000 acres of timberland, three employees, and a small office in Tacoma, Washington. Founded in 1900 by Frederick Weyerhaeuser, we've grown to become one of the largest sustainable forest products companies in the world. Jump forward a whole bunch. This is from the Seattle Times. 31st May 2003, Sarah Jean Green is the author. There is no ribbon-cutting equivalent when a community institution fades away, so there was no fanfare, no parades through town yesterday as the last workers at Weyerhaeuser's Snoqualmie Mill shipped out their last lumber orders and quietly closed up shop for good. The last lumber passed through the wood-finishing plant earlier this month at the mill, which had been in operation for more than 85 years. The last planers and dry kiln workers, those who had managed to hold on to their jobs even after a decade or so of layoffs, marked the mill's closure with a steak and baked potato cookout on May 8th, one worker said. When the company announced in October that it was closing its King County operations and would lay off the last group of about 110 Snoqualmie workers, it didn't come as much of a surprise. The Snoqualmie sawmill was shut down in 1989, and another mill was dismantled in the early 1960s, leaving only the wood-finishing plant and dry kiln. Those facilities will now be mothballed, their machinery salvaged, and moved to other locations said company spokesman Frank Mendizabal. Now this factory we're talking about is of course not just seen here, but is seen in the ninth episode of season three, in particular when Bobby is outside breaking open the capsule left behind by his father. You can see the old broken down leftover bits of the mill that are still there. Most of the main sawmill was shut down in 89, there was a fire in February 89 that destroyed much of the plywood plant. But it was a couple months before the closing in 89 that the Twin Peaks crew visited and got shots for the series that we see. The saw blades, the logs being cut, the establishing shots that we all know. This location is being developed. This is from livingsnoqualmie.com, 17th May 2017, by Dana McCall. It's been almost five years since the city of Snoqualmie annexed nearly 600 acres around the old Weyerhaeuser Mill site in the mill planning area of the city's urban growth area. Now the public can finally see what's being planned for part of the area. 
promised development of the old mill site located a few miles from downtown Snoqualmie will be presented at a combined public open house. Blah, 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 this already happened, so... The development has not really happened that much yet. But you can find on SnoqualmieMill.com a site plan. Snoqualmie Mill Master Plan organizes the site into three planning areas. These areas are intended to facilitate phased development of a compatible mix of land uses that can capture identified market and business opportunity. Ugh. Bunch of modern business speak. Industrial and commercial uses are generally separated in the overall planning except for the mixed-use area in Planning Area 1. The sequence and timing of each development phase or subphase will be good, blah, 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 will be responsive to market demand, to mitigation requirements, and to the timing of needed improvements in the surrounded areas. The specific area where the mill is will be in Planning Area 3, right across the street from Dirtfish Rally School, where they teach fancy race and stunt driving, and that building was notably used as a sheriff station. Here in the beginning of the credits, though, it's, of course, this is presumably the Packard Mill. And it is juxtaposed, as I was talking about last time, with that buried thrush. So what we get immediately at the opening credits is a bird sitting on a branch. This is nature. This is natural. It's still pleasant and fine. Immediately cut to a mill that cuts down these same trees that these birds sit in. And you get essentially a metaphor for the theme, which is small town being taken over by modern problems, violence and drugs, even in season one. Much more explicitly in season three, but still, that's the point of season one, season two. The murder of Laura Palmer is just the start, the thing that gets the ball rolling to reveal all of this shadow underneath, which will of course go into themes later with shadows and doppelgangers and all that. We're only a few seconds into the opening credits. And we already have this indication of nature being taken over by machines, buildings, society. I wouldn't say that David Lynch is trying to suggest we go back to nature, but he does certainly have a soft spot for the 1950s as this idealized Americana. Just look at Audrey's dress, look at the jukebox, look at the diner. This will keep coming up over and over again, but right here in these opening shots of the credits, we already kind of know that this show is about this conflict. It's like a tarot rating. You start with the two cards, so, well, certain formations, the one I know, the cross formation, you start with two cards in the middle, and their conflict is what matters. The bird is metaphor, I also said. Could be Laura, her soul. Laura as the soul of the town, the Twin Peaks. And it fades to the smokestacks. Where there's smoke, of course, there's fire. Fire! Walk with me! Coming back to Garland Briggs, remember, mystery is the most essential ingredient of life. Mystery creates wonder, which leads to curiosity, which in turn provides the ground for our desire to understand who and what we truly are. This has been a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com. Follow the show on Twitter at Peaks Radio, and on Facebook and Instagram at Twin Peaks Radio or join the Facebook group Lemming Drop Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops.
The owls may not be what they seem, but they still serve an imperative function. They remind us to look into the darkness.